The Deal with Yield is a podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. Tune in to episodes on iTunes, MyFarmRadio, and TheDealWithYield.com. Tweet any question you have for the hosts with the hashtag DealWithYield for your chance to hear their response. Welcome back with The Deal with Yield. So, Joel, when you think about a successful start in soybeans... What kind of management do you suggest to do for the growers? I think, you know, when you talk about soybean management, there's certainly a number of universities that are starting to look at soybean management as what are limiting factors. But there's a certain segment of decisions that you can't make once the seed is planted. And that all starts with seed treatment, really. Making every seed count and getting it off to the right start, I think, is a key piece. But I know I've heard you talk a little bit about Skittles in the past and the different color soybean seed treatment options are out there. What are your thoughts on colored versus not colored? And then does the color of the bean really matter? So when I explain the colors, do the green Skittles taste the same as the red Skittles, Joel? I I think they taste the same. They do in a Skittles package, but they don't in a seed treatment. So if you see uh, red or you see green seed treatments are not all created equal and that's what I want people to fully understand is you get what you pay for in seed treatment. There is some old technology with methamoxum and metalaxyl. The metalaxyl is the old fungicide. The new technology would be the methamoxum and there's different rates out there believe it or not. So even know that you're uh, purchasing a seed treatment doesn't always mean you're getting the best and doesn't always mean you're getting the same rate as a competitor down the road. You know, if you knew exactly how many days it was going to take for that seed to emerge, how would you change the fungicide application rate or the seed treatments that you'd put on there? I don't know if necessarily you'd change the rate because there is diseases that happen after the seed is up. But to know that your seed is going to sit in the ground longer and it might be colder, wetter environment where the seed could rot or a different disease of pythium or something would affect it, it all determines whether you're going to have a nice equal stand or emergence that come out of the ground. Are the plants healthy that are emerging? Just because the plant does emerge or the seed does emerge doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy. So I think using a good quality seed treatment also provides security once the seed is up. Yeah, I think about Phytophthora in particular, and that's one of the things that farmers ask me a lot about is, does it have a genetic Phytophthora protection? Does it have the C gene or the K gene? And that's a good thing to ask about against Phytophthora protection. But realistically, that gene doesn't start to get active till a little bit later in that plant cycle. So even a fungicide protection on that seed treatment is really critical to get that seed off to a good start. But a fungicide protection on that seed treatment is critical. What else besides fungicides are you seeing people put on as seed treatments for soybeans? Oh, we also put insecticides on. If you're trying to raise 65 bushel beans, striving for that 100 bushel yield century club that we call it, if you have an insect that's either chewing on it prior to emergence or chewing on it after emergence or sucking on it, pulling some protein or pulling some chlorophyll or whatever it might be looking for, that's a vector for disease to enter. So other than a good fungicide, Joel, what would you recommend? So soybean inoculants are certainly a, something that tends to help yields increase. And really what those inoculants are doing is helping the uh, rhizobia colonize that root 
and help them fix nitrogen more effectively. So as you think about some things to consider when you're looking at inoculants, it is about first and foremost rhizobia count. You wanna choose an inoculant that has a high rhizobia count, but there's also some inoculants out there that are helping with the signaling pathways of the plant for that rhizobia to colonize faster or for those rhizobia to do a better job fixing nitrogen. So as you think about soybean plants, Soybean plants need a lot of nitrogen, but they're also producing that from their roots. And that comes from a good, healthy inoculum. When soybeans got brought over here from the Asian countries, we didn't have that natural level of soybean rhizobia or that inoculum level of rhizobia in our soil. It wasn't native to us. So the initial rhizobia strains that they brought over actually came over as soil to colonize those roots. But with that being said, those inoculum strains have been far surpassed by the new technologies that are out there. So the need to re-inoculate your soybeans year over year, I think, is a key piece because although the new rhizobias are really, really aggressive at colonizing soybean roots, they might not be as good at overwintering or keeping alive just without a soybean crop as you rotate back to corn. I think another thing to think about, too, is know where you're getting your inoculum from. Is it United States? Or is it a foreign inoculum coming from? And how was that inoculum kept, knowing that it's alive, is it coming over in a, a steel container across a ship with no air conditioning? Temperature kills inoculant. So knowing where it is, it's just like seed treatment. You're going to get what you pay for. There is a lot of cheap inoculants out there, but most of them have been shipped overseas in a container that you have no control or didn't have air conditioning or anything like that in it. Yeah, I think beyond the inoculums, that's another space where the biologicals has entered into when we start to look at the ability to provide nematode protection. There's a couple options in the market that are biologically trying to either prevent that soybean nematode from colonizing the root, or they're actually going after it as a nematicide where they're actually killing that nematode. So I think when you head down the road of biologicals and we talk about soybean inoculants, there's also some new classes of seed treatments out there that can help prevent the worst soybean pests in the U.S. Have you been taking any cyst nematode counts in your geography? What have you been finding? You know, up until this last year, there wasn't a whole lot of sampling done on it. And the hot pockets of cysts are random throughout the field. So if you think you're going to go out and pull one sample and be a representation of the whole field, you're wrong. There is hot pockets. Uh, they do colonize. They do have multiple cycles throughout the year. So do know that if you're going to do take a soil sample and check for the eggs in there, that you have to take a bunch of random samples and send them off instead of just one. So from an insecticide on seed treatments, Kyle, what uses have you seen there or what benefits have you seen to apply an insecticide on seed treatments? Well, insecticides, there's a couple different ones. Obviously, there's ones that you spray in season and there's ones that you can use as a seed treatment. The ones that you use in seed treatment are systemic and as the plant grows, moves throughout. They're not a long full season control of bugs, but it does suppress them off. So a systemic versus non-systemic in allowing the insecticide to move up through the plant. It's not a full season, like I said, but it does suppress them off. If any time you're trying to raise good high-yielding soybeans, if you have something piercing or sucking or chewing on your soybean, you're going to allow a vector of a disease or something to enter the plant and to not allow you to establish good high-yielding soybeans. So, Joel, plantability of soybeans that are treated, sometimes people say if you treat them on a day that's a little humid or if you're pulling cold beans out of seed tanks, 
what should we do to help the flowability of beans or what kind of technologies are out there to help? Well, certainly there's a chance you can add a polymer into your seed treatment that when it dries, it'll make a more smooth surface so that that roughness of the beans that you add by treating it doesn't impede your ability to, to help them flow through. The seed treaters have actually come a long ways in the last two, three years. The equipment that they're using, either they're using a longer barrel and the seed gets an additional time to tumble in there, or they're actually utilizing an atomizer or a application tool further up in the treater, which gives that seed treatment the ability to be on the seed longer before you pile it into a bin. I think one of the key pieces is trying to get that seed dry while it's moving, because if you put wet seed into a bin, even if it's got a polymer on it, it'll freeze up and you'll be in there with a broomstick handle poking it down. So back when I was working retail and, and helping them seed treat a lot, we used to use a blower, just a regular carpet blower, blow air in to really get the product to dry. And also we've also incorporated some talc, you know, to help absorb some of that moisture, help flowability through the planters, graphite talc mixture. So Joel, after we plant, what is another crucial application that we have to do prior to beans emerging? That you would recommend? Well, you know, I think about one of the biggest enemies that we've got out here is weed control. And certainly uh, spring weed control is a key piece. If you haven't controlled your fall perennials, getting them killed in the spring can be kind of tough. But one of the things that we've started to adapt to in the industry is using multiple modes of action and layering residuals of pre-emerges. So I think as you think about putting down pre-emerges, we've certainly moved a lot more pre-emerges on soybeans, but one thing I, that you're gonna see more of this year in soybeans is layering these residuals on, where you're putting a pre-emerge down, and then once those plants are up out of the ground, you're gonna come back with a post-tank mix application that has some residual in that. And if you have Roundup resistance in your field, you're gonna be using maybe up to three or even four modes of action on those soybean fields. I think it's very crucial for us as we move forward here in the farm economy that we fully understand that there isn't any new technology of chemistry that has been released since the 80s. So we have to use what we have. And even if we come with the dicamba beans or the 2,4-D beans, we have to fully understand how to utilize that technology and not abuse it. Like Joel stated, we have to layer the technology and big pre-emergence products in our areas, a lot of PPOs. And we need to use those not free will when we want to, but to savor them because they're one of the few chemistries that actually don't have a lot of resistance at this time. You know, you think about resistance and what weeds can really do. When you look at the flowering of water hemp, 12 days after flowering, up to 50% of the seeds are viable. So think back to your fields that you had a couple of weeds poking out above the canopy back in August timeframe. When you think about those weeds, even if you were trying to spray them late with some sort of a revenge application and trying to kill them after they had kind of gone to seed a little bit, at 12 days after flowering, 50% of those water hemp seeds are viable. I think that water hemp and Roundup resistant weeds alone represent one of the biggest threats to yield and to our cropping systems than any other pest put together based on their ability to produce seed and do it in a very short order. So from a standpoint of using multiple modes of action and using layering of pre's, Kyle, what do you do to make sure that some of the tank mix partners that are burner chemistries can be more effective as well? So size does matter in weeds, Joel. 
And so once I was told by an old wise man, spray early, spray often, and we need to get these weeds when they're labeled on plantized. So if we continue to let these weeds stick over the top of the canopy of the crop that we're trying to control them and, and then expect these chemistries to continue to be Superman and pull all these down is not going to be the longevity of, of agriculture in the future. We're going to be out there pulling or we're going to be out there with a field cultivator or something to manage these weeds. You get to our southern states, Palmer Amaranth is a big deal down there. Uh, they can't run those through the sickle, Joe. They have to physically remove them. Otherwise, they're going to be breaking sickle sections. Yeah, I, I look at the two and four inch labels that are on most uh, burner herbicides. And if you look down at your desk or at the dashboard of your pickup and you see a pop can there, a pop can standing upright is four inches. Pop can on its side is two inches. So as you're out planting this spring, maybe one of the things you might consider is taking a 24 pack of soda along and just chucking one of those cans out the window every uh, 20 or 30 acres. That way when you get by them with the sprayer, if the weed is taller than the pop can, you should get out and pull it, because that might be the only way you're going to kill it. You must have decomposable cans in your neck of the woods, Joel. <laughs> nope, that's my aluminum herbicide program. We're promoting littering, Joel. Yeah, I'm also promoting weed control. <laughs> I think one thing to think about in early season weed control is also your fall weed control. Fall weed control in some geographies where you get a lot of heat units in the fall after that crop is harvested if you're not controlling some of your kochia or some of your winter annuals, it's going to be really tough to kill them in the spring. So good weed control starts with a fall application in some warmer geographies, and you follow that up with spring and a burndown application, followed by some residuals to kind of keep weed free all year long. We've talked about start clean, stay clean policies, and really the best weed that you ever saw is the one that you never saw. So we fully understand that Roundup's not killing weeds like when we were wearing diapers, Joel. But to actually know what kind of weed you have present takes a little scouting. And going through the crop protection guide at this time of the year to really fully understand what chemistries work on what types of weeds is kind of the answers to the test too. Yeah, if, if in a Roundup-resistant era for either Palmer or water hemp, if you're going to try and run over a thousand acres of soybeans, you need to have some considerations about hiring the local FFA chapters, convincing your spouse to have additional help on the farm, or being able to hire out help. I think labor will be one of the key weed mitigation tools that you have to use if we don't manage these multiple modes of actions. You've been listening to The Deal with Yield with Joel Whipperfirth, Winfield Ag Technology Application Lead and Winfield Master Agronomy Advisor, Kyle Reiner. For additional episodes of The Deal with Yield, visit iTunes, My Farm Radio, and thedealwithyield.com. Tweet any question you have for the hosts with the hashtag DealWithYield. 